0: Hello, self-improvement stud. It is Brian Ford with Self-Improvement Daily. Take ownership of your personal development one tip at a time. I hope you're having a great day and it's about to get a whole lot better because it's time for a self-improvement sit down. Instead of the usual two-minute episodes I share every weekday about a personal development tip, insight, observation, exercise, perspective, or whatever it might be, In self-improvement sit-down interviews, I slow it down and talk to industry experts so that we can hear their knowledge and experience on important topics. If you're new to the podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you can listen to your first tip tomorrow. If you've been here before, then welcome back. I appreciate you and would be really grateful if you took a minute to write a review on Apple podcasts. Anyway, you don't want to hear from me because today we have two fantastic guests. This is self-improvement sit down number 50 with Shane Snow and Alan Gannett. And we are live today. We have a two for one, the brilliant duo of Shane Snow and Alan Gannett. First, Shane is best known as the co-founder of Contently, a content marketing platform He's the author of three incredible books and is a renowned journalist. Now for Alan, Alan was the founder of a marketing analytics company called TrackMaven, the author of the book, The Creative Curve, and he's a well-established and respected marketer. Now they're two of the most creative people in the business world today, and together they co-host a new podcast called Creative Hotline, where they respond to thoughts and questions from their audience and share their experienced perspective on various topics.
1: Shane, Alan, both of you, Thank you very much for being here today. That was a pivy pitch. I like that, Shane. We should steal that. I know. I was gonna say. I uh, yeah. I feel. A warm I mean, it might inside. not be that creative, but I'm taking notes. <laughs> you know, like stealing all of that.
0: Cool. All right, let's do this. So, if you guys don't mind, um, I've got some questions lined up that are similar to those that are asked on the show, and because it's you have you have a really unique format that I think is effective. I think it really puts you guys in your wheelhouse, and I think that's kind of the best way to really um, provide value today. So I'd love to just kind of use that format if you don't mind. Does that sound good for you guys? Sounds great. Cool. All right. And just for everyone that's listening, cause this is an important point. So the guys you're about to listen to with these questions and answers are two of the best marketers and creative minds in the world right now. So this is a huge opportunity. I'm super excited. Uh, first,
1: what is your definition of genius? So this is this is Alan speaking. Um, I guess our voices are sort of interchangeable in some level, right? So this is Alan, <laughs> and um, I think that genius. We tend to think of it as something that people are born with, and we think of it as this idea of sort of being born with sort of radical talent, usually among the sort of a narrow dimension. Although sometimes we mean it in a very horizontal way, but I think in reality, to me, that's a that's that's a that's wrong. And in reality, what we refer to as genius is usually the result of long, long periods of time of intense training and in compounding advantage, where if you've been working on a craft for 15 years under the tutelage of some of the best teachers in the world, a la Mozart, you will become a pretty darn good comp- you know, composer and musician. And so I-, I tend to think of genius as something that is really a sort of element of craft and a sort of level of craft that is almost so great that we want to imagine that it's impossible to get to through normal channels. I like that. So for me, I think about the idea that
2: we call things brilliant or we call things genius. You hear it and it's almost a cliche in Hollywood. Oh, they're genius. And people (laughs) are like, oh, that means that they're whatever. Uh, But when we really mean it, when we call things genius, I think it tends to be something that we think is brilliant that we wouldn't have thought of or no one would have thought of. But then once you hear it, you're like, Uh. it's so obvious. It's That makes so much sense once I hear it, but I could never have thought of that myself. And I think it very much is a function of, of a lot of what Alan writes about in The Creative Curve, but kind of what he just alluded to, which is the more studied, you are, the more you've explored, the more you have in your brain to draw from, the easier it is to see what no one else sees. And so a lot of times, these genius types who have these brilliant ideas that are like, wow, I couldn't have thought of that. But it's so obvious. It's because they put the work in. And, uh, and so the other thing that I'll say is, I, I hate the quote that people like to bring up from Thomas Edison about how geniuses is uh, 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Uh, because Thomas Edison, it really is genius as 1% me thinking of something and 99% me paying people below minimum wage to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> but that the, the crux of that, I think, is, uh, is right, which is uh, you don't pop out of the womb a genius just coming up with ideas uh, that change the world. You put in the work, you put in the time to explore, to understand people, look at things from different perspectives, and then you come up with things that people recognize as brilliant. And often until the point that you come out with that, they think that you're you're crazy or what you're doing is a waste of time. And that's part of the thing that we celebrate later is, oh, they're a genius because everyone said they're wrong. And it turns out that now we
1: all recognize they're right. I like that we've, by the way, canceled Thomas Edison by minute 10 in this podcast. He's just <laughs> <Yeah>. he's gone. That's <laughs> funny. No, I mean...
0: Uh, What I heard from both of your responses is is it's a process, you know, there's almost a misconception about genius, you're born with it, it's the way that things are. And it it certainly is a process. But it's one of those things, you know, kind of the analogy of the iceberg, you know, you see the top of it, but everything that's going on under underneath the water, you know, that's very much kind of the, the product of genius is all of the investment, you know, And, and like you alluded to two kind of definitions of genius that I pulled in preparation for this, which is first is Ryan holidays and the obstacle is the way is he calls geniuses persistence in disguise. And Alan, you were talking about how kind of, you know, that investment in that process of like really putting in the work, you know, that is persistence and that's kind of overcoming some objections. And then Einstein, not necessarily Edison, Einstein's definition is taking complex things and making it simple, you know, and there is that kind of obvious element to it. Once you are a genius, it's obvious that you're there, but the process of
1: getting to that point isn't necessarily so. I think also there's this, this element that's important of, we use things and we use concepts often as self-protective mechanisms. And so I think the, the the liberal use of the word genius and applying it to lots of people in lots of situations is also a form of giving ourselves permission not to try not to fail. Mm. And so what I mean by that is that if we say, Oh, wow, you know, Mozart was a genius. He was a child prodigy, which isn't actually like if you go into the, he was a, you know, had a basically helicopter dad who at the age of three made him start practicing the piano three hours a day under the best music teachers in Europe, right? But like, if we look at him and just write him off essentially and say, oh, well, he was born that way. That also gives us permission not to try, Hmm. right? Because, well, I wasn't born that way. And like, that's BS because in reality, if you also had a helicopter dad who at the age of three was able to get you the best music teachers in all of Europe and emotionally pressure you to practice three hours a day, By the time you're 18, you also would be considered a quote unquote child prodigy. And so, and so I think a lot of times we want to believe on some level that I don't, you know, it's just not me. That's not me. So I'm not even going to try and I'm not even going to fail. Yeah. There's like an element
0: of convenient defense mechanism thinking you know it's like oh Mm that it's almost derived from that idea of like i don't need to challenge myself you know it's almost the fear of not being enough and kind of like your worthiness to some extent keeps you from believing that genius is built versus genius is inherited or kind of just born fantastic all right moving right along all right so shane let's get into more of your sweet spot and knowledge here so um, you know, you have a deep understanding of world history, trends, and human behavior. So what is one thing about human nature that you think will always be the same, regardless of the technology available and the circumstances we live
2: in? Oh, man. So there's a few things that I tend to talk about on this subject. The one that I, I think I love the most, just because I, I see my, one of my strongest identities is that of a writer. Uh, is storytelling. So I have this whole rant that I I don't have to repeat here, but uh, but I think it's really relevant to what we're seeing now on the internet and in culture in general is humans are built for storytelling. We use stories to teach people things, to get people to remember things, to get people to care about things, and we've done so since we could talk. And you know our brains use stories as a way to hook onto information and remember it later, but if I want you to remember something important to me, chances are, if I'm, I'm doing a good job of it, I'm gonna tell you it in the form of a story. You see politicians do this, they tell the story about you know, the starving plumber who you know, makes this great change and that's why we need this policy rather than showing you a chart of you know, something that you're gonna forget. And when you see, so right now we're, we're on a audio platform, right? Uh, people are listening to us through headphones. That is a medium. And uh, and it's one of many mediums that the internet has enabled. And every three days, there's some new TikTok dance competition app thing that, uh, that people are using and getting excited about. And what you see as a pattern every time something changes with technology or communication is we, we get excited about it, we do silly things on it, people join it just to do it. But then eventually the thing that ends up being what we pay attention to are great storytellers. So in the early days of the film camera, again back to Thomas Edison, the kinetoscope, uh, they would make these films of people shoveling garbage and riding horses down the street, and people loved it because it was new, it was novel. But then after a while, people stopped doing that, and then it wasn't until there were great stories like The Godfather and you know Jurassic Park and uh, and things like that that film really became this medium that was here to stay. And uh, and so I think a thing about human nature that I don't see going away anytime soon, no matter how many robot body parts we get installed in us or what changes with the internet is this thing that we are attracted to stories. We love telling stories and stories are part of what, uh, what makes things matter to us, I guess. They're part of what, how we make meaning out of all the information we get in life. So that's uh, like a three hour uh rant (laughs) condensed into two minutes uh sure but uh but to me that is something that's really important to remember and it also is I I think fun to remember that like great stories are part of what makes life interesting and memorable and how we connect with each other
0: sure yeah and I I think I mean what you're speaking into there and kind of that like just inherent nature of storytelling is is super unique and I mean I, I think it it alludes to like just Almost our evolutionary past, and I'm curious we don't have to you know get dive into it today. That's a, probably another conversation. but like what is it about our evolutionary past that made that the, the way that we develop? That's always my like, first question when it comes to human nature is what about our ancestral history created this to be so? And you know I'm, I'm sure
2: you have a, a great and eloquent response to that as well. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a few things. I mean real quick, if you think about uh, say we, we three are a tribe. Brian, Shane, and Alan, and we're living around, yeah, yeah, great tribe, tribe. awesome tribe, we don't have uh, many prospects for, uh, you know, growing our tribe unless we (laughs) we find another tribe, but uh, but let's say uh, Brian goes out and hunts all day and learns that the saber-toothed tiger is very dangerous, hard to kill, and doesn't taste very good, Uh, when he comes back to the campfire to tell us what he's learned for the day, He's not going to, the worst approach, right, would be uh, making a bullet point spreadsheet saying, here are the attributes of the saber-toothed tiger and why you should or should not deal with it, why you should go pick berries instead. But if you tell the story of how I was going through the bushes and something rustled and I thought it was a cute cat and then said it was this enormous cat and then it chased (laughs) me and then I killed it with a rock and then I ate it and it tasted terrible and I threw up, we're going to remember that story. We're going to stay away from the saber-toothed tiger next time. And That's like the crudest evolutionary kind of example but that's basically we as humans survive together we're not as uh sharp and clawy and teethy as the saber-toothed tiger but when we band together we could beat it and we could fight off other threats and build shelter and all that and how we pass down the knowledge of what's the smart way to do things was through stories and part of it brain wise what's going on is You just heard me tell that story, your brain filled in all this sensory information. You imagine being in a jungle or a desert or wherever it is, imagine what the saber tooth tiger looked like, you're processing the language because so much of your brain is active then, it creates basically more neural connections for you to then remember when you're thinking about, well, what kind of animal should I not eat in the jungle or whatever? You'll remember the saber tooth tiger story. Mm -hmm. So evolutionarily, it was part of how we created types of information for people to be able to pass down easily and remember easily. That's the first one. The other one is uh, there's an empathy function of our brain that if I tell a story about how Alan uh, fought off the saber toothed tiger and lost his arm and he did it so that he could, you know, provide the tribe with food and save the tribe. And then I tell the youngsters, and that's why you always give Alan the food first after we have the big hunt. Uh, they'll be like, okay, Grandpa Alan is awesome. And he did this stuff. And so we care about him. And so we'll give him the food. So those are the two main kind of mechanisms but but it it's all in the service of us surviving together and right. uh, and doing more together than we could on our own
0: right No brilliant yeah I love the idea of kind of it's an aversion that's generated and it's a single experience in order for the collective species to advance and for that local tribe to advance since we have this ability to cognitively share lessons that ends up being a survival advantage because now people in your gene pool who are in that tribe are now not susceptible to that same threat. So there, there is an element of communication that helps with it. Super, super brilliant, love that. Cool, all right, Alan, now this one's for you. So in The Creative Curve, you talk a lot about the optimal tension in marketing between the novel and the familiar. That concept I have applied in so many different areas once I understood it um, after reading your book. Um, but I'm curious to know from you, in what other areas of life do you think this is true? And in what areas
1: might this be false? Oh, there's I mean, there's so many areas. Esther Perel, who writes these books about relationships and sex, talks about how in romance, there, there's very much an element of with any relationship, you need to keep that tension between the novel and the familiar where, you know, having our spouse, you know, might m- feels familiar and very safe. But also, if you don't inject novelty into your relationship, and you don't sort of keep things, you know, unique and different, sometimes you can feel stale right? And a lot of sort of romance and eroticism comes from that element of novelty. So I think you find these tensions, that's because they're pretty evolutionarily based. I think you find that these tensions are really important, basically, in any dimension of human behavior. And it's why you think about, you know, with food or restaurants or vacations, you like to go on, we constantly have this tension between wanting to do things that we've done before wanting to do things that we know what to expect, with wanting to try new restaurants, new hotels, new friends, maybe even. And so I think this is a pretty ubiquitous dimension. And I go in my book about sort of why that is. Basically, our drive for the familiar is basically a safety recognition. And our drive for the novel is a reward-seeking behavior. So things that we haven't yet experienced, we apply to them what's called a novelty bonus, which is basically there's this idea that there's maybe something of value there that we want to explore, but we don't know what it is, but we ascribe it, we're pretty optimistic. So we ascribe it as being pretty pretty, pretty high. And then once we've explored it, obviously the novelty bonus starts to go down. And so basically our brain balances these two things. We want things that are familiar enough to be safe, but yet still novel enough to be interesting and exciting. And so it's that tension where a lot of times the things we're most drawn to or most attracted to come from.
0: Yeah. And I certainly think about personal development with that too. You know, if you talk about creating positive change within your life and just behavior change in general, you've got to be a bit uncomfortable. You've got to kind of step out of your comfort zone, as people put it, you know, and it is that tension where it's, I'm trying something new and it's novel, but it's not so far beyond my current capacity or my
1: current comfort zone that I feel like I'm going to fail. Right. So yeah. I mean, tension exists. video games, right. Mm-hmm. Video games. The whole idea is that in the beginning mastery of levels, right. is easier than it gets harder. And so if if you dropped into a video game, the first level was the hardest level, right? You would be scared to do it. Now, what's funny or what's interesting is that one of the reasons why I think in most crafts, people are like, oh, I can't do it. It's, you know, it's too scary. I wasn't born a child prodigy. Is that in real life, not in video games, usually the first level is the hardest. Like learning (laughs) the basics is usually very hard. And so while video games have designed to sort of get us on this engagement ramp, to allow us to sort of slowly increase our difficulty in real life. It's like hard and then it gets easier over time. Hmm. And so I think that mental sort of framework is helpful to think about because in the beginning, you have to push yourself through those hard steps. And this is why a lot of times parents, you know, pushing kids through those hard steps through sort of emotional or familial pressure. I think that's why a lot of times you see people, you know, do this when they're very young, because that's a time when we don't, we're not left up to our own devices. So we're not like, oh, wow, this was so hard. I'm not going to do it. But rather, oh, this was hard. And my dad said, you know, he won't love me unless I do it. Mm. I love that. Yeah. And it's kind of reminds
0: me of kind of like the, the big buzzwords of personal development, which is consistency, persistence, and resilience, right? And all of that is about putting in the work upfront, knowing that you might not be getting the overall large reward at the end, but eventually that will begin to compound. And those habits will start serving you where the input of effort now creates an output of higher success or higher uh, reward because you've overcome this activation energy almost to get there. So that's a, uh, no, I, I love that. Yeah, I, you're right. I mean, that topic, maybe I didn't think enough about it, but it's very
2: broadly applicable across all of these different domains and industries. So perfect. No, and and actually, Alan, you just made something click for me that uh, that kind of connects to the, the story idea that when you the, the, one of the benefits of journaling I've been digging into again uh, recently is uh, being able to put into a narrative what you've been through and what you want to do differently in the future. And just writing down or thinking through or talking out with a therapist, your journey so far, and then how that connects to what you want to do next is a, a very powerful way to overcome trauma, to uh, to learn things, to integrate new knowledge into your life. And so when I, I think about the three things of self-improvement... Uh, that, that you're all about, and I don't think about the familiarity and the, the novelty. I, uh, something that just clicked for me is thinking back through or putting into words your journey, your story so far, uh, is an exercise in the familiarity, in uh, uh, connecting with you know, what you already have got and becoming comfortable and feeling safe, and then putting what you want to change in the future is an exercise in the novelty, but it's safer to do that um, and more exciting to do that when you've already kind of primed yourself psychologically by uh, by thinking through your past. So I think that uh, it, it, you see it in therapy, you hear about it in journaling, which is why it's on my mind. But I think there's something really interesting there that uh, that I didn't realize until you just said it, Alan, that that might be the mechanism that's going on with that, why that's so such a recommended uh, intervention.
1: Well, it's even wilder than that. So I'm working on shane knows this but it's kind of a secret so anyone listening pretend you didn't hear it but i'm working on a new book and part of the the what i've one of the things i found that that was interesting is there's all this research on narrative formation as a sort of psychologically healthy thing to do and sort of forming narratives about your past and especially your childhood but what's interesting shane you'll really like this what's interesting is that narrative formation is the thing that's tied to psychological well-being, not narrative coherence or narrative accuracy. So, or sorry, narrative coherence is, narrative accuracy isn't. So you need to have a coherent narrative, but doesn't actually have to be accurate, which I think is really funny. So it's like we want as humans to have sort of a story about where we've come from and a story that sort of explains where we are today that allows us to sort of process the world better, but doesn't actually have to be accurate. (laughs) Like we just, we so need a story to sort of base ourselves and ground ourselves on, but we don't need to obsess over making sure it's, you know, historically perfectly accurate because that's not actually a thing that gives us calm.
2: Sorry, Brian, we're taking over your podcast.
1: No, I'm just sitting in the (laughs) background.
0: I love the way you guys think. Like I just like in real time seeing you guys process this and kind of recognize the assumptions you have in the moment, challenge those and then reason through it. Like, it's just, it's really cool for me to observe. So you guys just go off and do your thing. This is, yeah, I'm, I'm the biggest beneficiary of, of you guys right now. So I appreciate that. Um, and, and now maybe to tap into some more of that. So, and hopefully, hopefully there's some disagreement between you guys on this too, um, which I feel okay. like there might be based on your personality types. But this is in my mind, an age old question when it comes to creative thinking and being a creator. And the question is what is better for a creator, order or disorder?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I wonder, well, I, I can go first. Um, I think that there are different stages of creativity and they benefit from order and disorder. So what you want to do, if you want to create something new, you're, you're going to be working from the building blocks you have, whatever knowledge you have, whatever people, whatever diverse array of information or sources or inspiration that you're tapping into, but then you're going to build something out of that. That's what creating is. And, uh, and so the more you can explore, the more you can rearrange those inputs, the more chance you have of making a combination that is novel and therefore creative. And so there's some disorder is helpful for that. However, at a certain point, uh, too much disorder is not going to turn into something useful or beautiful, or this is why you know, robots are not very good at making art yet is because they they can't do that filtering process after they uh, make a million combinations of things. They can't decide which one is the the most beautiful one or the most interesting or useful one. And so different parts of the creative process require both things. I think for me, having some structure around the disorder part or the exploration part of the creative process is helpful. Kind of like if I say, hey, Brian, uh, come up with a poem on the spot right now, that's gonna be a little harder than if I say, Hey, come up with a haiku about pizza right now. Mm. You know, that structure helps you to uh, to create within that rather than just sort
1: of flounder around and be confused. I think that Shane got this, you know, basically 99% right, which is that you need to have order and you need to have structure to your thinking. And you know, I think that the idea of disorder as being something that's tied to creativity or something that is useful to creativity is again, part of this sort of mythology that we've developed around creativity. And you see this in the movies and the books and the novels and all this stuff. But when you actually talk to living, breathing creatives, they tend to be really structured and thoughtful. And you know, Shane and I did a game on our show the other day where I made him guess whether or not different famous creatives were night owls or morning people. And in doing so, I had to research a bunch of their routines. and like, all these people are super routined. You know, they have very clear structure to their day and they're very repetitive in how they work. And, and that's what makes them productive and allows them to have sort of sustainable output. And so, again, I think the mythology of creativity really sort of permeates how we think about our own creativity versus if we look at the reality of how creativity works, what we find is it tends to be a pretty structured activity. By yeah. the way, I got every one of those wrong on that he was he was really terrible, really terrible <laughs> speaking of disorder
0: <laughs> no I mean you bring you bring an interesting point up about like the mythology and the expectation of like what you know because myself I don't necessarily identify as like a true creator like I'm very structured and routine based and organized, but maybe that's my own like frame of reference. I feel like there is this expectation or this kind of um ideal of the creator, which is they're the unorganized, they show up late to everything and they like wash their clothes every month, you know, like that kind of person that's just disheveled. And it's like, oh, that's just the way that's what's what they they require in order to like bring their crazy thoughts to the world. And it's like, maybe that's the outside looking in versus people who identify with that being like, yeah, you know, this is who I am. And these are the ways I think about the world, which are different, which allows me to be creative, but still there needs to be some
1: guardrails within that. I, I also think that there's an element of sometimes we look to the creative person closest to us and we look at how they live their lives. Hmm. And I think just statistically speaking, the creative person closest to us is probably not the most successful creative person, right? <laughs> and so versus, so in my book, I interviewed 25 living creative greats. So these were Oscar winners, Tony Award winners, billionaires, Michelin star chefs, very eclectic sort of set of very successful creatives a pretty pretty successful, structured, organized life. And so I'm also a believer that a lot of the practices that enable creativity on a high sort of world class scale are not the same practices or tendencies, which I think is intuitive once you say it hmm. that you know maybe a lay creative person would do you know without sort of knowing what those bigger processes look like. yeah, I, I think there's also a uh, there's a correlation issue. Where, uh,
2: when you look at the actual creative process, you know someone who say they are a personal mess, but then when they sit down and paint or they sit down and write, that they're putting all of their energy and the structure and the you know the iterations that it takes to do great work into that, at the expense of their hygiene. Not it's not the bad hygiene that's leading to the creativity. It's they don't care about that other stuff. Uh, And so there is that creative personality as well. But I think I I would dare you to find someone who is more than a one hit wonder who their creative process does not have a lot Mm. of thought and structure. And, uh, and, And so I think that's where the mythology comes from. I think about someone like Hunter Thompson who, you know, great writer and kind of out there and did a lot of drugs and he would go on these binges and benders and, you know, crash his car and he'd write these semi-autobiographical stories about just doing suitcases full of drugs. But then when he sat down and he had a deadline to write, he would sit down and write for 20 hours straight and, you know, only take breaks to use the bathroom and he was so rigorous about his actual writing and this is actually an example of what we we're talking about there's this crazy exploration gaining all these experiences and you know in an extremely unhealthy way but then when he actually did the creative part he's filtering stuff down and being very very rigorous and dedicated but what people take away is oh if I do suitcases full of drugs I'll be creative like that's not that <laughs> that's not what you should take away from that at all
0: love that yeah, I mean, both you guys reference, in my opinion, kind of, yeah, we talked about frame of reference, but also just the general relativity of a creator, you know, relativity, both yourself to others, but then also yourself to your other processes. And I think, yeah, that correlation piece is really interesting because it's like you think of the creator holistically of them as a person, but then the creator's creativity comes out when they're creating. So it's mm-hmm. like, what is that process itself? And that requires some kind of order but perhaps it's the disorder in their life that allows them to enter that flow state so they can apply their creativity in such a unique
1: way. So there's, I don't know. I, Shane knows that's one of my pet peeves. No offense, (laughs) Brian. I just think, I think there's this idea that like all these creatives are like deeply messed up. And I think that's, there are messed up creatives, but there's also messed up accountants, right? Yeah, Messed up insurance salespeople. And so I think those stories might be better narratives or stories, but I know plenty of very, very successful creatives who are like, nice normal sure. kind you know yeah. people with their life together right and, I, and people I,
0: leverage anything as an excuse you know like you talk about anything and someone's going to take it to the nth degree and like make it an excuse or kind of be the hyperbole of whatever that is you know so I, I, maybe and, that's and just you know, exaggerated in the creative community
1: yeah and i think there are creatives who are a complete disaster <laughs> and that you know benefits their creativity but I also think there's creatives who maybe are deeply in love and that benefits their creativity or sure. are deeply in grief from a loss and that benefits their creativity or, you know, they, you know, there's good and bad they're, traits, they're just and healthy
2: and happy and able yeah. to focus and that helps their creativity. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. I'm Brian. I'm like, I'm like, you're, I am, to be fair, I am like a depressive. And so I guess, you know, in terms of writers, I do fit that cliche at least. So <laughs> Everyone's got something, you know, it, no. that's the
0: thing. Like, that's what you mentioned. Like everyone's got their motivation. They've got their reasons, you know, they come from their own vantage point. And, and that's why art is different when it's created is because it's the, the people inherently behind it are so different, you know, so that's, but,
1: but that's a good, like, I think about my own depression, I'm not productive from a creative perspective when I'm depressed. So, you know, it's not, I don't even find it beneficial. I don't even find that when I'm depressed, I like sure. get ideas that benefit my creativity. So perhaps I, I just it's that, think it's, it's that
0: experience though, when you are in a different mind space that you might be able to leverage that at times. So it's, it's one of those so. like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want I, to speak I, lightly of no, what I,
1: you experience, I think, but I think, I think it makes me right, more Brian. empathetic.
2: Yes. I was going to say, Alan is one of the most empathetic people I know. He's, Perfect. he's gone through things that other people go through and he understands that. And I think to some degree, he may subconsciously draw from that experience later when he's feeling well, but he certainly is a better collaborator, a better human being, because he understands some of the hard things in life. that oh, not goes through.
0: Cool. Love you guys. Oh, Love you guys too. We're such a good tribe. <laughs> 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 okay. And let's, let's wrap it up with one last question. Actually kind of piggy box well off of that idea of, Hey, things aren't perfect all the time. Um, which I mean, let's be real, like no one is so. I think that's important to address.
1: Shane is perfect all the time. Okay.
0: There's Um, always, like I said, there's always an exception, but this is more of a practical and tactical question rather than kind of like a, and maybe introspective, but I think ultimately I want more of like a tactical answer. Um, And it's just about failure, you know? So something that there's a conversation around failure, which is like, oh, it's so important. You need to put yourself in failure shoes and go out and fail as fast as you can if you want to be successful, right? You know, that's something that, I think a lot of people I respect have mentioned and experienced and likely you guys have as well. Um, It's easy to say in theory, and it's very difficult to do in practice. If you actually are experiencing failure, how do you harness that, right? Like that is, it's, it's inherently difficult. It's, it's, uh, it's unnatural. Um, So practically, you know, what do you do or what can you tell people to do um, when they encounter real failure in their life so that they end up pulling positives or opportunity out of it? Like, do you have any practices or ways of thinking about it that you've used and benefited from?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've experienced things that have had like serious failure and I have two thoughts. One is I think being expressive and externalizing, not the blame, but externalizing the experience and just make talking about it and making it feel think more tangible and practical. I think if you try and put you know bottle up all the failure and think about it and obsess over it, I think it can be very destructive. But I think talking about it is actually very liberating. And it helps people other people connect with you. And it helps people understand. And I think once you start talking about it, you can start to process like where things went wrong. And what you also find when you have a career in anything creative over time is that you know there's an element of luck, but there's also an element of skill and craft. And I think realizing that it's both, I think is very healthy because one, sometimes when you fail, it was because of luck. Sometimes when you fail it was because you made the wrong decisions. And a lot of times it's a little bit of both.
2: So in uh, in my first book, I wrote about failure. Versus feedback in the third chapter, and it starts with I went to a startup funeral. It was I don't know ten years ago, um, and uh, and someone was throwing a party for the death of their startup company. I thought this was fascinating, so I was That's I fun. dug into yeah I dug into why that and is the uh, you know the talk track about fail fast, fail often, failure is good, let's celebrate it. Is that healthy or not? And the conclusion that I came to through a bunch of research and, and you know going to some of these events and, and then looking at the psychology behind failure is uh, the, the short answer is, you know what's better than failure is learning. So if what you do doesn't work out and you frame it as failure, that is a lot more psychologically taxing for most personality types than if you frame it as learning. And if you approach what you're doing from that standpoint, then you can set yourself up to I guess, learn at every juncture, the longer something goes on, the, hard, the more failure hurts. You know. So if you, so we're, we're writers, Alan and I, so say we write a, a whole book and then show the book to someone and it's terrible. That mm-hmm. hurts a lot worse than if we write an outline for a chapter, show it to someone and it's terrible. And we learn oh, from yeah. that how to make a better outline for a chapter. So this sort of rapid feedback process that creates uh, more learning than it does failure, sets you up to not be so devastated uh, when something doesn't work out. But if you do make a big bet, you do work really hard on something, you spend a lot of your time or life on something and it doesn't work out, that can be very painful and very demotivating, but you can always learn from it. So there's this, uh, this concept in psychology called post-traumatic growth, which is uh, it's something that's been written about a lot in the last few years, but I think it's a really empowering idea so when you look at the statistics most people who have a trauma happen to them end up growing eventually from it rather than being uh stressed from it so ptsd is the more rare case uh and you know this is not to minimize anything to say well if you you know someone dies and you're you have ptsd uh then that's your fault but it's not your fault at all but what, what i'm saying is that most people manage to eventually learn from and be better for trauma and if you approach setbacks in life knowing that it actually increases your chances of growing from trauma rather than being stressed by trauma in the long term, and so for me that's just the core philosophy and principle that uh, that's that's what's most likely going to happen. Uh, so turn failure into learning. Set yourself up so that you can learn and not feel like it's a failure. And in the cases when you know some things are completely devastating and lead to PTSD. There are people there to help you. And there are professionals there to help you that can turn PTSD into post-traumatic growth. And so there's always a way out. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but for me, that's my approach to the failure thing is uh, great. Your, your startup failed or your thing isn't going to work. Well, glad we learned now rather than five years from now when it would hurt worse. And mm-hmm. uh, let's see what we can learn from it. Let's support each other through it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, failure and, and kind of relating with failure certainly is a mindset, you know, and, and that's the difficult part is it's so kind of esoteric if it's a mindset. It's like, oh, well, what do you do with your mindset? But mm-hmm. I, I love that frame. So, I mean, obviously with traumatic experience that teaches you a lot, but that's almost like forcing your, you know, like it's like a forced lesson versus a more of a mindset lesson, just mm-hmm. because like through rationalization, you need to find meaning in whatever happened. You know, that's just kind of one of our natural tendencies. And I would
1: say one one thing I would add to that is I think part of that journey or experience is acknowledging that failure sucks, like it hurts, it's not pleasant, and it's okay to wallow in that a little bit. In fact, I think it's almost impossible. I'm not a psychologist, but I think it's probably almost impossible to turn it into growth unless you've also at least emotionally gone through some of the experience of it being like, this was terrible, right? And so I think sometimes my only sort of subtle criticism of sort of failure I don't know, whatever mythologies and stuff would be that it sometimes doesn't give us room to just wallow in it and be sad. Mm -hmm. And and that uh, allows
0: you to kind of like scope out and see like where the failure existed within the attempt, you know, like, you know, Shane was saying, it's like, okay, you know, failing at a draft is way better than failing, you know, at the full book and releasing that. And that's because if you allow yourself to be expressive, feel the emotions then you can come back to okay what is the lesson and allows you to kind of come to a more productive space around it and if you if you recognize that there is this ultimate goal that the micro failure that doesn't threaten you and your capabilities as much because it's small and doesn't mean as much to you it allows you to improve that so that when you are in pursuit of that goal it ends up being something that contributes um more effectively than something that you're still like sticking your neck even farther out um, and exposing yourself to even more risk. So I I love, I love that thought. And then Alan, to go back to what you talked about too, I had something that clicked, which was um, you know, the idea of failure being a combination of luck and skill. I, I think that's really again unnatural, but important to recognize because that's what we attribute towards success. And for some reason, we have this dissociation between the positive things that happen in our life and the negative things that happen in our life. But ultimately, it's the same set of factors. It's just the way that the cards went, right? So if if we have more almost like self-awareness and self-empathy around like success and failure being two sides of the same coin with the same inputs contributing toward it, then we can not take it so personally. But we have this kind of like egocentric view that makes us so critical of our own failures, even though a lot of it's out of our control. So I I like that, that like contrast that you are able to present of how these different elements do kind of interplay in certain ways. Shane Allen. Wow. Thank you guys so much. This has been very enlightening for me. I really enjoy your work. I mean, there's so much to be learned from it and yeah, I encourage everyone who's listening this to go check out their podcast creative hotline, which is just more of the same where it really gets you thinking. It really gets you kind of in the shoes and introspective of yourself in terms of how you relate with difficult topics that are normal, that everyone's thinking about. And then here's just an additional experience perspective toward it. So I appreciate your brains. Continue to share freely everything that you guys have learned and experienced with the world. And I'm just so grateful that you shared with us today.
1: Thanks, Brian. Brian.
0: There you have it. That was Shane Snow and Alan Gannett. I really like how that conversation went. It was inquisitive and introspective while still rooted in experience and at times very open and vulnerable. I cannot share loud enough how pioneering their work is in the marketing space, and I'm glad you got a taste of it. If you want more, I highly recommend you check out the podcast they host together. It's called Creative Hotline, so you can learn more of their understandings and insights. In this conversation, we covered a few topics related to genius, storytelling, organization and order, our evolutionary tendencies, and failure. And on the Creative Hotline podcast, they talk about so much more. I'm lucky to have them in my tribe, and I'm lucky to have you in my tribe too. Don't hesitate to reach out on Instagram at self.improvement.daily if there's anything I can help with. I live in service of you and your goals, and I'm honored to play a role in your growth. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Self-Improvement Daily.